Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. starting 1st Timothy chapter 6 today, continuing to go through 1st Timothy. So if you have your Bibles or an app or however you kind of follow through God's word, please turn there. Uh, In case you were worried that we spent all of last week on one verse and we have a whole chapter left in here of 21 verses, no concern. We're going to hit bigger chunks today. We're actually going to cover two verses. So we're going to make some significant progress. Twice, twice the pace today. On the heels of a week talking about the Bible and booze, which I think Travis did well as a a time to equip and a time for us to fall under God's word and to see what God's word says and line that up with our experience and kind of our predisposition, uh, we follow that now with a week to talk about slavery and the gospel. Still being in this letter to Timothy, uh, for those of you who may be new or just by way of reminder would appreciate it. Um, This is a letter that we call a book of the Bible, but it was truly a letter at at its origin from Paul the Apostle to Timothy, his young pupil. Uh, Timothy was in the city of Ephesus, which was a very prominent city in the Roman Empire at the time, very metropolitan, very diverse, a lot going on, a lot happening, economically thriving, population growing. Um, Paul had been there years before and was uh, part of helping start the church in Ephesus, And a few years before this letter to Timothy, it actually penned a letter directly to the church that we call the book of Ephesians, but it was truly his letter to Ephesus. Um, And Paul has a real heart for these people and is hearing some things that are of concern and they're really frustrating him. He's hearing that this church that started um, seeing just transformation happen, the spirit moving kind of under the umbrella of Christ has died for all and his sacrifice is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient to gather a people to himself from every tribe tongue, nation, economic group, social structure, um, that as that, Paul's heart was just warmed by what was starting there. He's now hearing that there's false teachers coming in who are saying, yeah, that Jesus stuff is great, but you need to do this. Don't eat this. Do that. Work this way. Kind of adding layers of laws, layers of rules, and really confusing and frustrating um, with incorrect views about Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus day to day. So Paul Um, as any uh, caring church planter, took his pupil Timothy, someone he poured his life into, a disciple of his who he calls basically like a son, and he sends him in. Maybe maybe someone here has worked for a a large organization that has kind of a corporate office and like a regional branch, and you're at the regional branch, and there's been an issue, and all of a sudden corporate sends somebody in to go fix it. That's kind of the picture I get here of Paul with Timothy. He's like, hey, we have to address this. You're going in, like parachute in there, get ready for the battle because we have some work to do because we are not going to let false teachers and sin and and what's happening here destroy what God is doing. We don't want to destroy the diversity of what God is doing, the power of what God is doing, and what we see happening around us. And so uh, along with sending Timothy in, a young guy who, as we heard last week, was young and needed a little bit of wine for his stomach to kind of get through some of the tough conversations, Paul also pens a letter to Timothy as kind of like, hey, hey here's, here's some instructions for you. Like when you, when, you, when, you, when you leave that tough conversation, go back home and you're praying, like here's something to sit down and read by candlelight to kind of just, just, just to bathe in, to be affirmed by and to be instructed by. 
the, the middle portions of this letter, chapters 2 through 6, are heavily about practical instruction. And, pro- and, and really instruction looking at problems that Timothy was going to face. And Paul's heart and advice to him is, hey, here's what you need to do. So we've seen um, instruction for us to pray for all people, like to desire peace in the land. Because in times of peace, it's the ideal setting for the gospel message to spread. We've seen him instruct about leadership in the church and who should be leaders, who should not be leaders, what qualifications should look like. And we've seen the conduct of older and younger men addressed. We've seen the treatment and care of widows addressed. And these weren't by ran- these weren't just Paul kind of choosing random things to look at. These were from what he was hearing. Hey, there's some issues here. How widows are treated should be a beacon of light within the church. And it's becoming a point of dissension. How, how older men are acting should be a beacon of light for the church. And it's becoming a source of shame. So let's line these things up with God's heart as we learn how within the gospel story to live out our story. As we start chapter 6, Paul turns his attention in this letter to slavery. And it's thought that up to half of the population of the early church were slaves. People who in one capacity or another had given up their rights or had given up freedom or didn't have freedom or rights by You know, maybe it was um, something that they had done, a punishment, a penalty, or even just willingly, you know, join themselves under um, kind of the the headship of a household for for provision for them financially. Whatever way they came into it, um, there was a very, very large slave population in the ancient world, and there was a very, very large slave population in the early church. But the beautiful thing that was drawing in so many to the church was the reality, as Paul says, that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. There's, no, there's not Jew nor Greek. Like we're all one in Christ. Like there is an equality to be found. There is a value to be found. There is an identity offered that is not contingent on your social, st- your social status, where you're from, who you are, where you've been. And imagine how that would land on someone who has spent the entirety of their life or much of their life under the authority of another, without a voice, without rights, potentially being abused or taken advantage of, feeling unseen, unheard, unvaluable, to then hear this message that in God's eyes, like, you are valuable. And there's a place at the table for you. So that's the group that Paul is now addressing. And here's what he says. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, that's the Greek word doulos that can be translated to slave or bondservant, but all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Only a few years earlier, Paul had penned a similar message in the letter directly to the Ephesian church. Ephesians 6, 5-9 through 9 won't be up here, but just listen with me. Bondservants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. It kind of feels a bit anticlimactic, right? Like how, how this, this group who's been told that even though like you are marginalized and unseen in society, like in God's eyes, like you are valuable, you have worth. It's like, okay, and maybe Tim is like, all right, so, so slaves, like, here, here's what Paul says. And I was like, yeah, what we got? Obey. Tomorrow, go back in. Submit. 
But don't just submit because you have to. Submit because you want to. What? Submit because I want to with a sincere heart. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, didn't Jesus say, like, he came to, to give liberty to the captives? Like, didn't, didn't he come to say that he gave, he's bringing liberty to the oppressed, which he did? Jesus quoted Isaiah 61. We see the account of that in Luke 4, where he quotes that as part of, like, how people will know, like, the kingdom is coming. This challenges our belief system, especially as, as Americans, and, and largely because when I say the word slave, there's a high degree of probability is that what your mind, where your mind goes is to 19th century America. And one of the darkest, most deplorable hours in our nation's history with the African slave trade and the abuses that came from it. I, I will say that as we look at that time period, that was also one of the darkest hours for the American church who lacked unity on the stance toward the African slave trade and found unity was only found in different geographies. And I don't think that Jesus meant for geography to be the defining point for our position on an atrocity like that. So we've got to deal with a few challenges to our belief system this morning. The first being that we believe slavery is deeply wrong. And yet Paul says slaves ought to obey their masters. The second challenge that we, we've, got to, we've got to square up, we've got to deal with, is the idea that we believe that rights are to be fought for. Like, that is, that is the mantra of our culture. And honestly, there's a lot in Scripture, too, about that, that rights are to be fought for. I will say that, and maybe in a, a, a bit of a twist from how we think about it as Americans, um, the Bible, the Scriptures tell us that, that our rights have been secured by Christ. But we do believe rights are to be fought for, and yet Paul seems to be saying, lay down your rights. And thirdly, we, we've got to deal with the reality that we believe independence is everything. I mean, is that not, like, who we are? Our, our, our nation was founded on a revolution. Like, we dumped tea into the ocean because we felt it wasn't right being taxed. And yet, Paul seems to be s promoting submission. So we're going we're gonna to deal with some of these challenges, but we're going to do it in a bit of a roundabout way. Um, I, I like history. I like understanding how history kind of intersects with the scriptures that we study and God's word. Um, and I also come out of uh, five years of experience in college ministry, doing outreach on college campuses, a lot of evangelism and apologetics, to know that the topic of slavery can sometimes be a stumbling block and could be kind of one of those like little, I gotcha, um, little sound bites from those who want to attack the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of our Bibles and the scriptures. Because this is the question that comes. Well, if you're, it, th does the Bible condone slavery? Because I think, and if you, again, if you proof text things from the Bible, you can make a case for almost anything. And I've heard folks like, oh, I think the Bible condones slavery, so that can't be God's word. Or if it is, it's not a God I want to follow. And so I want to this morning spend a little bit of time kind of generally running through um, the scriptures and history to equip. Because I think as God's people, it's good for us to have the idea of what, what like bigger bites of scripture tell us. So we're not so prone to feel undercut by sound bites. Um, so let's look back in history a little bit in the ancient world. It's, it's worth noting up front as we try to kind of align our vision of slavery with what Paul would have been thinking that slavery in the ancient world was more economic than ethnic. I mean, truly in the recorded history of mankind, slavery has been more prevalent than freedom. 
Um, that's a result of just sin and poverty and destitution and war um, and, and a, lot of, um, a lot of maladies that, that, that man have, have come through and been through. But slavery in the ancient world was more economically driven than ethnically driven. The slavery that we're familiar with in our context in America was much more ethnically driven. As people were justifying that because you are of a different race, like you are subservient and, and don't bear the image of God in the same way that I do. But that was not so in the ancient world. In the ancient world, so now I'm speaking ancient world like thousands of years. Think, think like Abraham's time, Isaac, Jacob. In that time, households were filled with servants and slaves, often out of the choice that one made that, hey, I, I, am, I am poor. I don't have food, clothing, or shelter. I see that family has a lot of it, and I'm going to go and take, I'm going to trade my freedom to fall under the umbrella of the food, clothing, and shelter of this household and to work for you. Because in the ancient world, say in Abraham's time, you didn't have economic systems or financial structures in place with cities and developed governments so that those who were poor had like job placement assistance or had um, government assistance for a period of time to get back on their feet. It was kind of like, well, I've lost everything. I have nothing. I've got two choices. I die or I take what I do have, my effort and my time, and I trade that. And I give up my right to make my own schedule for food, clothing, and shelter. And that drove a lot of slavery and servanthood in the ancient world. Um, fast forward a bit to kind of where slavery and, and God's people and that topic intersects. Um, we're all familiar with Moses, let my people go, the story of the children of Israel in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt, the inhumane treatment, and God being like, hey, I, they're, they're coming out. I'm bringing them out. You know, Pharaoh tried to resist, but you don't resist God very long. He's quite a bit more powerful. And so the people of Israel, this, this, the, the millions of Israelites come out of Egypt, and now they're on the way to the promised land, wandering in the wilderness, and God's like, all right, you're my people. Let's get some things straight here. And, and God imparted his law to help align their lives, and, and imparting his law dealt directly with the topic of slavery and servanthood. And we see God's heart come out in that. And we see God's heart come out really in a few primary ways. One is in God's desire to prevent slavery. The second is in God's desire to, to regulate and promote the humane treatment of people and their own humanity. And the third is God's heart come out in judgment later. Um, uh, one verse to throw up here, Leviticus 35, excuse me, Leviticus 25, starting verse 35. And I do this so you don't think I'm just making this up. Like, like if, I, if, if what I'm saying doesn't align here, you should just throw tomatoes. But let, let's, let's take a look here at a few passages. You can study more deeply. Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15 will be your friends if you want to study more on this topic. But Leviticus 25, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest or profit from him, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you, you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And it goes on from there to say, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, so there's kind of like the way that, that economic transaction happened into slavery. So if he does this, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. Brief side note, you're like, what does that mean? So in, in, in Hebrew, um, slave, servant, sojourner, th those titles were 
kind of associated with different types of roles and tasks. So a servant, to me, a hired worker is one who was kind of more skilled in what they were asked to do. So basically what, what's being said here is, hey, if your brother sells him, do you like, don't just go make him like go like muck the stalls. Give him, give him something to do that's a bit more honorable to kind of, you know, work back the debt. Okay, like, like let's, let's be a little more humane here. I'm back in the middle of this section here. So he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Is God's heart to promote slavery? No, it's not. If you really want to be floored by, by the way God aligned his, his, his people, uh, go read about the year of Jubilee. Like literally in the seventh year, debts are canceled. Land is returned. You go back to your clan and your possession. It's almost like a redo. Isn't that amazing? Imagine if that happened for us. So if someone falls on hard times, they get themselves in a really rough place, they basically like, hey, I just need to sell my freedom to be able to put you know, food on my table and have clothes and a place to sleep. Could be by their own doing. They could have been a knucklehead, you know, or could have just been um, a, a something they couldn't control. And year seven, rewind. Okay, let's reset everything. Debts are forgiven. And what a beautiful picture of grace. And what a beautiful picture of God's heart to push back on oppression and to push back on poverty and lack. Um. So when, when slavery was the case in the nation, God also spoke to that because he realized with, with a broken and fractured world that this was going to happen. It was going to happen. And so Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27, when a man strikes the eye of his slave, again, this is law imparted from the Lord to his people. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Basically, you know, masters, you have the responsibility to care for these people. If you can't be self-controlled, you don't have the opportunity. I will protect these people. And this, these were laws mandated in the nation that were enforced. Um, it's also in Exodus 21, verse 16, and, and, I, and I connect this back to our understanding of slavery and human trafficking and what we may picture. Exodus 21, 16 tells us that um, the death penalty was prescribed for anyone caught kidnapping and buying or selling someone against their will. That was God's seriousness towards the protection of the humanity of people. Like if you, if you go and you kidnap somebody, and you're going to go sell them, like you're going to die. And then the person that buys them is going to die. And that was implemented and exercised in the nation of Israel at the direction of God. Those, those two factors alone, the physical protection and, and that law basically like, like ascribing the death penalty there, imagine how that would have played out in, in 19th century America if that was enforced. Do you think the perception of the church's stance would have been different on slavery? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what happens when Israel um, didn't, didn't fall through on this? Well, Jeremiah 34 tells us as the prophet Jeremiah is speaking out judgment from God over the nation, right as they're being exiled and, and taken out, so um, this passage starts with Jeremiah quoting some of the, the law. At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. There's that year of Jubilee whole piece there. Um, says, but your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, 
and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. So when we go back to the history of the nation of Israel, what had happened was they had kind of forsaken the year of Jubilee because it was inconvenient. It was inconvenient for those in power to let people go. And so they began to model the rest of the nation, not model God's heart. And so God gave them a strict warning. And for a period of time, like, okay, let's let's, let's fix this, let's fix this. As they see, like, the enemy armies coming that God has proclaimed are coming for you. And, And after briefly fixing it, they went right back, and God's like, all right, enough. And in their exile, they actually all became slaves. Let's fast forward now to slavery in first century Rome. It's estimated that at the peak of the Roman Empire, about 40% of the population would fall under that umbrella of doulos, slave or bond servant. That's up to 25 million people or more. Does that surprise anybody? When we think of the Roman Empire, I'm not sure like that's the picture we have. But by that time in the first century, the slave-to-master relationship had become the primary economic relationship. So honestly, that was as common then as our employer-to-employee relationship is now. Um, but to understand the, the look of slavery in the first century, we've got to understand a bit of the different roles and tasks operated in. Because when you and I predominantly think of the word slave, the association that comes to us, uh, which honestly is you know, kind of our American experience, looks different than what Paul was thinking of. Because um, that, that category, doulos, bondservant or slave, had a broad spectrum of different roles and jobs and vocations and treatment underneath it. Um, there was certainly menial, grueling, like dehumanizing labor being done by slaves. But that same term applied to those in household service, tutors, doctors, managers, craftsmen, musicians, scribes. See, in, in the context of the ancient world, there was education, but often it would be a family, you know, gives their child to a wealthy household or a wealthy individual and says, hey, um, I'm going to commit them to you for, for these years as your slave. Please train them and, and apprentice them and, and build them up. And often by the age of 30 or 35, a slave could buy their freedom because they had been trained in a skilled task and they not only were provided food, clothing, and shelter, but had the opportunity to make a salary and could purchase their freedom. So not, not at all to say that, that slavery is good, but I wanted to provide a picture of like this is what Paul's speaking to. This is, this is a broad part of the population. And there were abuses, and there were non-abuses. Um, there were masters who were caring and kind, so much so that slaves would choose at the end of their kind of like defined period of slavery to stay in the house and forever align themselves with that role. And there were um, there are historical accounts of, of, of masters who were just tyrants. This is the reality of the ancient world that Paul is speaking into. And this is the reality of the church that he's speaking to. I mentioned that it was believed that up to half the early church were slaves. They really were just kind of a representation of the society that they were in, in terms of the numbers. Okay, back to 1 Timothy 6.1. So now with, with the eyes that Paul has, let's take a look at this and explain it. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, let all who are under this weight as a slave, without rights and freedom, um, at the beck and call of a master each day, let you regard your masters as worthy of all honor. When you regard something, you're not reliant on it's like it being kind of the the, the primary driver of what you think. 
So like if I regard Sean as worthy of all honor, um, I am not saying that I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see how he responds, and if he's honorable, I'll honor him. I'm making the choice first as to what I'm going to think and how I'm going to act. It's not a conditional relationship. So that's what Paul is saying here. Like, I want you bond servants and slaves, as, as, you, know, as you leave this house church gathering today where we're, we're talking about Jesus, when you go back to your place of service, when you go back into this role that you have as a bond servant, I want you to regard, I want you to consider your master worthy of all honor. What does that tangibly look like, to consider someone worthy of all honor? Think of, if you could choose to have lunch with one person, who would it be? And think of how you would treat that person at lunch. Kindness, conversation, care, assuming the best, listening, wanting to know the heart. That's what Paul's saying here. Like, this is how I want you to be. I, I want you to go back there. I want you to just, okay, God, I, I'm going to do this. I'm going to consider this person, regardless of who they are, what they've done, worthy of, of, of being treated well, even if they don't treat me well. I'm going to say kind words, even if I'm not getting kind words. And why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Basically, Paul's saying, I want you to go and I want you to live in this way so that the name of God, God's character, and the teaching, this gospel message, won't be reviled. Like it won't be just like spit back out. It won't be shamed. I'm, I'm not up here this morning just trying to get our church through a difficult part of First Timothy and just trying to kind of make some things up to justify. We truly believe and I truly believe that these are the inspired words of God through his apostle Paul, through Timothy, in this letter to these people. Think of it for a moment. If you received an inspired message from God, would you expect that your obedience to it would yield a significant result? Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So what I want to do for just a moment is bring a little more historical context into what was happening at the time. This, this letter that Paul penned to Timothy is estimated to have been written between AD 62 and 66, somewhere in that time, a couple years after he penned the letter directly to the church in, in um, Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. So within that time, there are these two letters going to the church in Ephesus along with some other letters Paul wrote that all kind of reiterate the same thing. Hey, slaves, um, here's, here's what I want you to do. Like this side of the gospel story, here's how I want you to live out your story. I want there to be submissiveness and humility and kindness, and this is what I want you to, I want you to do. In uh, AD 66, while Emperor Nero, who some of you may have heard of because he was an absolute tyrant of an emperor who persecuted many religions, in AD 66, the, the Jewish culture and their exasperation of being under the oppression of Rome came to a boil. In Jerusalem and the area surrounding that, um, the, the Jewish people, they just got tired of seeing the, the temple treasury raided when Rome thought they should pay more taxes and their holy artifacts taken, of being ill-treated in the streets, of being precluded from sacrifices or ceremonies or festivals. Or they just they got tired of it. And in that year, in the town of Caesarea, which is on the Mediterranean coast, about 50 miles northwest of Jerusalem, a little revolt started among some Jewish people against the Romans and the local Gentiles. 
It's written that the Roman army who was supposed to be there to keep order and peace and protect everybody, Jew or Greek, turned a blind eye and let the Greek-speaking Gentiles into the Jewish quarter and cut people down like animals. Word got to the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding countrysides, and the people, the Jewish people went crazy. Um, uh, in, the, in the months following this, it's, it's written that there was actually so much of an uprising so quick in Jerusalem that for a period of time, the Jews had actually like pushed some of the Romans out of the city. It took a long time to travel. They weren't like, they weren't like airlifting troops in. So it took, it took a while for word to get back to Rome. But not long after that, Nero's like, mm-mm. And he sent his veteran general Vespasian with four legions to Jerusalem. And on the way there, wreaking absolute havoc, murdering, pillaging, burning Jewish communities and trying to take out Jewish culture with it. About, uh, about AD 68, there's a slight pause to this as uh, Nero dies and Vespasian, this general, is the kind of the next in line to the throne. And so kind of a brief point of like he's in the battlefield. It's like, oh, I need to get back to Rome because that may be my job next. So there's a brief pause, but soon uh, General Vespasian, who's ascending to the throne, sends his son Titus, who's just as brutal to pick up the fight. And it's written that uh, Titus believed that he should destroy the temple. This is recorded by Roman historians that, that Titus's view was, I'm going to destroy the temple in order that the Jewish and the Christian religions might be completely abolished. Since Christians were an offshoot, <coughs> you take out the root and they both fall. That was his viewpoint as he took the legions. And eventually they tightened the noose, destroyed the temple, <coughs> and set to decimate Jewish culture, decimate the Jewish people, and just scatter them as slaves into the known world. Within just a few decades, Rome would replace Jerusalem as the center of Christian influence. Four legions were no match for what God was doing. And I wonder if the, the people in Rome and the people in Ephesus and the surrounding countrysides who were hearing of the atrocities um, but we're, we're living obedient to the instruction from the apostles. We're, we're thinking of the parable Jesus told that they would recount in their oral history about the parable of the mustard seed. Jesus in that parable says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his fields. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. See, what the people who were hearing, what, what the early church who, who was hearing this decimation of Jewish culture got to see around them was, we're trying to be obedient and be like Jesus in the ordinary moments. <laughs> Something extraordinary is happening. Like, we're, we're growing, we're seeing lives change, there's spiritual freedom, there's transformation. And it's not because we're taking up the sword. It's because, as Jesus did, we're putting on the towel and we're bending down to wash feet and we're serving. And then came the Constantine moment for the church. Don't get out your phones and Google that. Like, what is he talking about? I'll explain it here. <clears throat> In the early 4th century, think uh, A.D., kind of 303, um, still heavy persecution of Christian religion and other religions under uh, Diocletian, the emperor at the time. Um, and honestly, in, in Roman culture, um, up until that point in time, there was never much of a long span without Christianity somehow being in the crosshairs. 
because Rome was very much about social levels and structures and was open to lots of different religions and gods. And then you had these Christian people saying, no, there's one God, and he's my master. He's higher than the emperor to me. He's who I serve. And we're all equal in God's eyes. That didn't sit well in Roman culture. But the churches kept growing because even when masters wouldn't agree with the philosophy or the religion of, of their slaves and their servants or these early church members, they, they, they liked the way they loved and the way they served and the way they poured their lives out. Um, there, there are some writings going back to the first and second century and some historians at that time who talk about households where masters were approached during kind of the cleansing of the Jews and said, hey, do you want us to, do you want us to take your servants out too and, you know, and, and do away with them? The master's like, no. I know they're Christians, but I'm like, man, they, they're, they, they serve well here. Like, I, I leave them alone. And in a sense, some of these masters who had no inclination toward Christ became a covering. So I think God practically had an idea that for the spread of his kingdom, for the mustard seeds to get to go in the ground and start to sprout, you didn't have to go oppose Roman government at the time. Didn't have to fight the social structure in hope of personal redemption. He was going to target personal redemption to fight the social structure. Because in A.D. 303, um, after the last major persecution by Emperor Diocletian, um, he became ill and died two years later. And as uh, they were looking at who would ascend the throne, they, what they kind of did at that time was they divided up and said, okay, there's three kind of vying individuals for it. Um, one was a man named Constantine, another a man named Licinia, Licinius. Um, at the end of the day, it became Constantine and Licinius becoming co-emperors. And Constantine, uh, one night, it's recorded, um, while uh, praying to the gods of his fathers, has this vision, and in this vision sees a cross of light in the heavens. And then later that night in a dream, Christ comes to him and says, you need to make a likeness of that cross that you saw and wear it on your person as a safeguard in all the engagements with your enemies. Soon after, Constantine becomes a Christian and immediately goes to Licinius, the other um, co-emperor, and they issue a decree legalizing the Christian faith and making toleration of all persecuted religions the rule in the Roman Empire. Can you imagine the, those, those, um, those, early, those early churches, the believers getting together like, is this real? Like, we have lived in the background below the radar for so long. Like, is this a joke? Is this a trap? What is this? But imagine also their recollections then to, okay, a mustard seed. And someday that just grows into a tree. Um, the mustard plant can grow eight feet tall. It's like this is, when, when, when Jesus' hearers would have heard that, it's like, okay, this little itty-bitty thing that if I had in my hand you couldn't see can become something very significant. But it's going to start small. You're not even going to notice it. So um, just to finish the story, Constantine was baptized in 337 um, A.D. And in his time as emperor, he said often that Christianity was both his way to God and it was also the only way he knew to unite an empire. What a radically different picture from only a few hundred years before. And he also mentions in the historical accounts that part of his openness to Christianity was the lives he saw being lived around him and the way these people would, would, would treat others that he couldn't understand. He didn't know why these Christians were going and rescuing babies off of rocks and caring for them and raising them when they weren't wanted by society. He couldn't understand why um, a slave who was in bondage, far from their family, far from anything that, that they could identify with, 
would serve well and be kind, just it, it just it blew his mind. So why why does this matter? Why go through the history? Why keep you guys here on on uh, this long on Super Bowl Sunday? Well, I <coughs> I wanted to share the the historical narrative alongside this scripture so we can marvel at the wisdom of God. So the the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, like it hits us personally. Like it, it hits the heart that we're forgiven and we're invited into a relationship with God. That's, that's the message. Like that's the words I put behind it. But the true power of the gospel is not in the right metaphor. It's not in like the right order of like presenting the basic tenets of the gospel. The power in the message is really the spirits applying that saving work of Jesus to the heart. So at the end of the day, the, the onus isn't on us to save people. But God invites us into redemptive participation. God invites us to be a part of the story. He instructs us how to take a deep desire we feel when we sing songs like we do here often. There, there's one in particular. Uh, it's a song, I think it's called All Is For Your Glory. But there's this bridge in the song that says, so put me anywhere. Just put your glory in me. I'll serve anywhere. Just let me see your beauty. So catch me up in your story. All my life is for your glory. I love that song. I love that part of the song. And I think you guys do too, because whenever we sing it, like it gets louder during that bridge. Like it's like, like this place gets rocking. So I think we, I think, I think we want that to be true, but we also then wonder, what does that look like when I leave here? And, and, I, and I think the message, the reality that Paul was trying to impart to slaves, to husbands, to wives, to all members of society, is that it may not look like what you think it should look like. It might be humility more often than heroics. It might be submission more often than independence. It might be prayer more often than preaching. There may be a hidden component that you're asked to day-to-day be faithful in the ordinary moments, and that faithfulness in ordinary moments is the bridge to extraordinary things. But you've got to be willing to wait. You've got to be willing to submit to God's way of doing things, to his way of redeeming this world that may look far different than how we'd go about it if we had the sword, the lightning, the power, you name it. My wife and I have had to kind of fall under this idea a bit here for the last 10 months of uh, submitting to something that we don't always agree with or don't always find to be efficient as we're in the process of adopting our two beautiful little girls who we're currently foster parents for. Um, I'll be honest with you, the process of, of becoming a foster parent and taking kids in it's a beautiful thing, but honestly a frustrating thing as you give up your rights to privacy, social workers in your home a lot. You give up your rights to how you would want to discipline your kids or how you have um, because there's certain things you can and can't do and certain ways you can and can't go about like helping correct behavior and, and all these different things. Um, you, you give up maybe some pictures of what you thought life would look like because I'll be honest with you, raising kids who've been through trauma is, is tough. I mean, raising our own kids is tough because we put them through trauma, but... Um, raising kids who've been through even deeper trauma and had separation and been in different homes and don't know where, s- don't even know what security and trust is, can be really hard. <coughs> but we feel like God said, hey, lay, lay those things open because you're going to get to participate in a redemptive work. Um, and we see that in waves. Like we see inklings, of like the Lord like drops us like, like pictures of hope to help us when the next day is hard. But the reality is often God says, all right, 
I need you just to be faithful in the ordinary moments and just trust me. Paul puts it in a different one of his writings this way in the book of Titus. This is a letter not to Titus, the, the general we talked about earlier. That's certain people. This is Titus, a pupil of Paul that he um, was encouraging, who was helping lead um, in the early church. Titus 2, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I love that word, adorn. But Paul says, he kind of puts it on the positive spin. So 1 Timothy 6, he's kind of like the negative spin of like, hey, don't, like, do this just so you, like, you don't make the name look bad. But here he puts it the other way and says, no, 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 actually, when, when, you, when you live in this way, you are going to beautify the message of Christ. And imagine a slave hearing this. A lot of slaves in the ancient world, they spent their, their waking hours adorning their masters, like, as people, or households, or tables with food. I mean, they spent a lot of their time adorning very temporary earthly things. And so to hear the message of, you know what, when you do that with the sincerity of faith, when you do that as if you're doing that for me, you're actually adorning the gospel. It may look like you're clothing your master, but you're actually clothing Jesus and his message. And you're participating in redemption because we don't know when the Constantine moment's gonna come. But we can be faithful in these small moments. We can be faithful each day as we go out from our homes or even within our homes to live like Jesus lived, to love like Jesus loved, and to believe that, we, that when we do that, we who are reconciled participate in reconciliation. So to bring it maybe a bit more kind of just practical, how do we adorn the gospel as an employee? Well, when we look at our jobs, I, I do believe we need to view it within the lens that our, our, our job is not our purpose in life, but our job really is, what, is where God sovereignly has placed us to make Christ known and to make his name great, not our name great. I believe we have an opportunity. But this is challenging for us. It's challenging for us to live truly keeping in mind all the time and believing and, and, and living out that we're under the authority of another and our life really is for Christ's purpose because we are highly allergic to the idea that everything exists for God's glory. Like we are, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I wake up in the morning, my first thought is like, oh, another day for God's glory. My first thought is like, I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? What do I want today to look like? What, I mean, I, I, my, my mind quickly comes back to me. And I do believe as a nation and as a people, we we're just allergic to the idea like that life's not about me. It's hard for us. We, put, we value independence. We value our rights. We value all these different things. I mean, the self-help, self-promotion, self-esteem section of our bookstores or Amazon, because we don't have bookstores that much anymore, is robust. And it's being filled with all these books about making much of us, my best life now, and things like that. We've got questions we have to wrestle with if we're gonna try to try to take in what Paul is saying here. One is, where am I at with kind of that, that my rights versus God's reputation? And that's a hard one, and, and, and hear me out, I'm not saying like my legal rights, I'm not saying that. I'm saying like, where am I at with my right to roll my eyes? Well, my boss is an idiot. Where am I at with my right to kind of like, you know what, uh, uh, you know, to talk with my coworker and kind of, you know, be a little bit cutting or, or to gossip, these things like, ah, oh, it's not harming anybody. Like, I got to get through the day, so this helps me. Like, where are we at with that? Versus living under the reality that, like, I've got a chance 
to make God's name famous. I've got a chance to promote God's reputation. And it may mean some self-control in areas where I can justify doing that. And I think we also, too, have to be aware of some of the big questions that we can take to our spouses or to our workplace that really shouldn't go there. Questions like, who am I? Am I seen? Am I appreciated? If we take a question like, who am I to work, what do you think you're going to hear? Well, what do you do? That's who you are. If I take a question like, am I seen into, into my work, what do you think I'm going to hear? Well, what have you done? What have you done lately? And if I ask, you know, my work environment, my boss, like, am I appreciated? You're probably going to hear another question. Well, what value do you bring by what you do? See, that's the problem with trying to answer these core questions outside of our relationship with God and, and, and who we are in Christ is that they become very much conditioned on how good we are or what we do, and none of us are that impressive. We're just not, I'll be honest with you. And if we are, we're not that impressive that long. I mean, we're just not. But imagine what it looks like if into your relationships, into your workplace, into your community, you come from the standpoint that these questions have been answered by the gospel. Who am I? You're beloved. You're a son or a daughter. Am I seen? Absolutely. Like you have a place at the table. You are uniquely gifted as a part of the body of Christ to participate in redemption. Like you're a part of this whole saving of the world to turn this thing upside down. And am I appreciated? Yeah, I know your name. I know the hairs on your head. Like you're, you're valuable to me. Imagine you walk into work that way. You're like, hey, I'm here to serve. I'm here to love. I'm here to see the needs around me, not just see my own needs so glaring that I can't, I, I can't focus on anything else. Our... Our life is about the reflection of his glory off of our lives. That's, that's what the intent was. That's what the intent is. And I, and I think we also have to live in the reality that we may be the only Jesus that people see. So part of, I believe, God's grand design of diversity in the church is that he does want to reach every tribe and tongue and nation. That he wants to reach the boardroom. He wants to reach... The outhouse, you name it. I mean, he wants to kind of across the board, like everybody has value. He wasn't lying to slaves just to get them in the church when he says that in Christ, you're all equal. Like he has value. And so he's going to scatter us into various places and ask us to be his agents there. But we might be the only picture of Jesus that a lot of people see. So getting practical again, what do you do if you have a jerk for a boss? Um, or maybe even just your boss is a jerk today. I, I, uh, I have to admit that I am in the role that I am, I am, I am the boss at, at my family's business. Um, I'm the CEO of our, of our farming company, so I get, I'm, I'm, I'm in that role. And I think most days I'm a pretty good boss, but I, I do have days where it's just not going well. Um, so what about those days? What about those times? What do I need to do? Well, remember, we're supposed to regard our masters as worthy of honor, which means it's on us. Like, it's not condition on their behavior. So I believe Paul, under the inspiration of God, would say if, you're, if your boss is a jerk, you need to pray because prayer is going to be the pathway to sincerity of, of, a, of your heart being in it when you go and you speak well and you consider them worthy of honor. So I think one of the first things we have to hear is that we need to be a praying people to be able to, 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 to get up from kneeling before the Lord and be able to go out and to adorn the gospel. We have to be a praying people. 
because sincerity of faith in the heart that Paul wants to be in our actions toward others doesn't come just because we try hard. So what do you do then if you have a believing boss? Well, the second half of 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2, the second verse we won't touch on much, really clearly says, like, if you have a believing boss, don't take advantage of that. Because what kind of a witness is that? If you say, well, because we're both Christians, because I know this is true of us and we're both equal in God's sight, I'm going to disrespect the structures and orders of my workplace. And I'm going to try to capitalize on that, like, hey, we were in church today. We both heard Gunner's message, right? So don't have that, like, authority thing over me. I mean, the reality is we live in a well-developed society that has order and structure. It's part of it. Absolutely. As this church grows, there will be more organizational structure to it. Like, that is just kind of how things operate when you have a lot of people. You're trying to get them all going in the same direction. So this doesn't mean that when we preach equality in Christ that we then just want to undermine structures. We want to undermine authority and disrespect that. No, what it means is that we say, you know what, I can, I can live under the, the, the authority of a believing boss because even though he's a believer, I'm still under the authority of my true master. I'm under the authority of Christ, and he's what he's telling me to do, to serve all the better. And to also then desire that it goes well for bosses who are believers. That's what Paul says here. Like, you, you want it to go well for them. Like, you want there to be blessing in their lives that can trickle down to others. Like, we want that. Promote that. Pursue that. All right, so here comes the cheap shot, and I apologize. I'll say it up front. Is our independence everything, or is Jesus everything? I know that one feels like a sucker punch, um, but we've got to ask this question. Because I do believe that we're supposed to take in the gospel story, and then ask God to help us understand how our story fits within it. And so often we want to have our story and say, okay, God, now how are you going to fit the gospel story in my story? There's a a quote I want to share to this regard. It's from a gentleman named David Platt who wrote a a commentary on Paul's letter to Timothy. Does the Bible redeem slavery? By that, I mean that God's word takes slavery, a product of sin, and turns it into a powerful image of God's goodness. Consider the beauty of Christ and the gospel reality that our master has become our servant. This is the essence of Christianity, that our master has become our servant, and so in turn we gladly become his slave. A slave is one who belongs to another and is under the authority of another. That was the way Paul wanted to be identified, and it's the way every follower of Christ should want to be identified. We are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, and unlike the sinful pictures of slavery we see in the world, slavery and service to the Lord Jesus is glorious freedom. At the end of the day, the question is not whether we are slaves, but whose slaves we are. I truly believe that our ideas of independence are kind of a mirage. We're really not all that independent. We're really not all that self-sufficient. We all are slaves to something. And And I believe that one of the reasons God has allowed for slavery to be very prevalent across the history of man is so that we can see clearly the need for a good master. So that we can see clearly like the benefit of falling under the authority of one who is gracious and kind, loves us and knows us. So that as we look at where we fall in slavery in our lives, like our heart's desire is not for this independence that really, like I said, is a mirage, but is to align our hearts to the right master we can serve and fall under the authority of, who has our goodness in mind and has a purpose that we're, we're excited about that our redemptive participation is something that we're invited to, not something we settle for.
And we'll finish with this, Philippians 2. Um, This is a a passage often called the kenosis of Christ. We're going to read it together in closing. This is Paul again writing to the church in Philippi, saying, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So it sounds like Paul's like, what he says for slaves to do is a similar picture to what Jesus did. And look where it goes from there. Therefore, so as a result of Jesus saying, hey, I will be made low, I will serve. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did, did you catch it there? Like, here's God's plan. My people may be made low, but as we're made low and we submit under, my, under the authorities, we serve and as we love, what we're doing is we're increasing the choir of those who will one day sing, Jesus is Lord, knee bowed before him. That's what it means to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like is to be willing to submit and to serve under the authority of God in the places that you are and the ways that he asks you. Because in, in, and as I said earlier, kind of taking up the towel as Jesus did and bending down to wash feet and being willing to love others and to love the unlovely, we model Jesus and become a part of his plan to redeem the world by God becoming a slave, becoming a servant, so that and when he is exalted again, every knee will bow. But it spreads like a mustard seed. That this redemption goes heart to heart. It starts small and it grows it grows. The most influential man in history of the world chose to take up the towel. He chose to become a slave to redeem the world that he loved and to call to himself people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And what Titus, the general, thought he was snuffing out and taking down the temple, turns out all he did was scatter the seed farther. And in scattering the seed farther, saw Jesus through his people, through their humility and submission, turn the world upside down and turn an empire upside down. And I believe there are Constantine moments ahead of us. I don't believe God's done. But I believe to get there, he's going to call us to serve in the spheres that we're in and to love like Jesus loves. Let's pray. Jesus, you, um, I I think you, you, amaze us because we can't relate to what it is to have all power and choose to become a servant. Lord, your picture is powerful. Lord, help it to set deep in our hearts. Lord, help us to open our hands of the things that we may feel like are essential and most important if they're not the things that you feel like are essential and most important, Lord. Help us to have submissive spirits to you and to realize that when we when we live in submission, it's under the authority of a good master who's got a plan in place, Lord, to redeem. Help us, Father, in the relationships that are a struggle. Help us in the workplaces that are a struggle to go in with an attitude that we believe would be pleasing to you. And Lord, I pray that you would drive us to prayer, that you would drive us to our knees before you, Lord, asking you to fill us. Asking, us, asking you to realign our view of the world as to who we really serve. 
take away the mirage of independence, Lord, and help us desire not independence, but the right master. And to fall under the care of one who knows us and loves us and demonstrated that on the cross by dying for our sins and then rising from the dead to prove that death has no more victory. I've won your rights. I've won your identity. I've won your freedom. It's secure in me. Now follow me. Thank you, Lord, that that's our call. We love you, Jesus. Honestly, we can't comprehend you, but we love you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time.